Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. I have to tell you that out of all the people that I wanted to interview for the Psychedelic IQ podcast, today's episode was at the top of the list. From the very beginning, I created this project with the intention and really the mission to improve safety and positive outcomes for facilitators and the clients that they're working with. And I've been in this world for some time now and there were so there were parts of my work as the kind of founder of a spiritual community center that were so confusing and nobody teaches you how to show up in multiple role relationships you don't learn that in business school you don't learn that sitting with a teacher in peru nobody really teaches us how to have really great boundaries. And most of the time we don't have very great boundaries until our buttons get pushed enough or we until we get so far out of our center that we need to create better boundaries. And one of my mentors said, Hey, you should really check out this book called the ethics of caring by Kylia Taylor. And I haven't highlighted more in a book than I have in this one since college. So All I can do is tell anybody who is just even willing to listen to the first minute and 39 seconds of this introduction. If you don't listen to the rest of the podcast, please go out and buy the book. But if you're willing to get schooled and really learn and maybe adopt a compassionate framework around the concept of ethics, I encourage you to listen to what's about to come. Kylia and I talk just like generally about ethics, her trademarked concept of inner ethics. We look at dual and multiple role relationships and how we need to show up in those relationships. We look at the importance of community and even more important, like the responsibility that leaders of communities have in the work that they're doing. So, I learned more in this episode than any other episode that we've recorded for season one. And I am just incredibly grateful that Kylia took a chance uh, on Psychedelic IQ and joined us. Without any further ado, I will introduce Kylia Taylor, who is a licensed therapist who has been thinking, writing, and teaching about ethics for three decades. She developed and teaches inner ethics a self-reflective, self-compassionate approach to relational ethics. The model includes a set of awareness tools that are especially useful to those working with psychedelic-assisted therapy. Ilya started studying with Stanislav Grof and Christina Grof in 1984 and worked with Stan Grof as a senior trainer in the Grof Transpersonal Training throughout the 90s. He is the author of The Ethics of Caring, Finding Right Relationship with Clients, and several books about holotropic breathwork. You can find her at innerethics.com. 
And without any further ado, I give you Kylia Taylor. Kylia Taylor, welcome to Psychedelic IQ. Um, out of all of the episodes that we are recording for season one, this is the one that I am the most excited about. So thank you so much for being here. That's really nice of you to say. I'm really glad to be with you too, GV. I will tell you and just the anybody listening to this, and as I shared in our before we started recording, I had been in my work for almost 15 years, and I have studied with a number of teachers that are serving medicine in a lot of different ways. But last year, I opened up a spiritual community center and my life, like a spiritual community center that had nothing to do with medicine work. And my life got so confusing <laughs> because all of these people that had been sort of friends or maybe I had mentored them. Now, some of them became like I became their landlord. I became their spiritual director. I became a friend. I became a mentor. I became their coach. and. It all got really confusing really fast. And it wasn't until a mutual friend of ours, Christina Hunter, um, who was one of my mentors, said, hey, maybe you should read this book by <laughs> Kylia Taylor. And I said, oh, thank you. Somebody is actually speaking my language. So um, if anybody out there uh, has not already read uh, The Ethics of Caring by Kylia, which I think you wrote in 1995. Is that right? I wrote the first book in 1995, and then I rewrote it in 2017 with 22 years more experience and <laughs> reorganized it. And yeah, 80 more pages. So if you're going to um, buy it, buy the, the second one. <laughs> well, I can tell you that it has, there's more highlights in this book right now than almost any other book. And it is in so many ways has become um, a Bible for me in the work that I'm doing. So as a, somebody working with clients and working with groups, if you haven't bought it yet, pick up a copy. That's really great that it's been useful to you. It gets so complex when you have all those different selves and relationships and all the other people have all their selves. And yeah. For anybody who hasn't read the book or doesn't know you or your name, um, let's start with what kind of work you're doing right now. And then what got you to this uh, point? Like, what's your origin story? Uh, what I'm doing right now is inner ethics. And I trademarked that word because I wanted what we're doing to be done really well and up to a certain standard. So <clears throat> I think that ethical relationship is what is healing. Ethics is about relationship. And what I've really focused on for the last 30 years is how do I teach what is necessary in extraordinary states of consciousness. How do you learn about that? And I've come up with some tools and I teach that. And I've been teaching um, in a lot of training programs for psychedelic work. It's been really great because, you know, for about 20 years, nobody was really interested <laughs> in ethics or in my kind of ethics. And in fact, they wanted to run the other way from anything that had to do with ethics. They felt defensive or didn't like it or didn't want to be controlled or whatever. But my work is not about that. It's about learning to know yourself and learning to be a better at person at caring for a person who is very vulnerable. 
in an extraordinary state of consciousness. And finding out about ourselves is really kind of interesting. It's like watching a really good TV series and not knowing what the next episode is going to be and just getting into it. <laughs> what do you think, my, my experience with ethics prior to bumping into your book, my experience was in a business ethics course in college. And it was really heavy. It had very little to do with me. Um, and there always seemed to be like, I know that there's no specific right and wrong in ethics, but there was always some element of like, you did this wrong or there's some shaming involved in this. How would you say your opinion or your approach is different? Well, I think everybody makes mistakes. And I, I think the main thing that's different about my approach is compassion. I really don't think that you can learn anything learn from your mistakes unless you get to a place of self-compassion. So the first step in any kind of self-inquiry, ethical self-inquiry is to get to self-compassion. And sometimes we need other people to help us do that. Yeah. So what do you think is ethically different about setting for people in an extraordinary state of consciousness versus just doing maybe traditional therapy work or coaching? Well, I think the main thing is that the person that you're sitting for or facilitating the session is usually very vulnerable, extra suggestible, and very sensitive. They, uh, in ordinary states of consciousness, they can also pretty well take care of themselves in terms of pr protection and have some ego defenses and so forth. And in a psychedelic session or any breath work or any extraordinary state of consciousness session, that may go out the window and it has to. Vulnerability is a precursor of change. It's, almost, it's a prerequisite of change in itself. You have to get to a place where you don't know anything or you uh, are in a place that you are willing to go into the unknown. And that is a vulnerable place. And you need somebody there to protect you. Uh, protect you in this physical sense because you might not really understand material reality while you're in that state, <clears throat> protect you emotionally, and protect you from them. They need to protect you from them. And that's where self-knowing comes in. It's really important to do our own consciousness development so that we can really be there in a good way for people. You just uh, were featured in an article on ecstatic integration. Uh, and the article was called Kylia Taylor on the woman who lost everything. And I think it's a really, really good opportunity to just give an example of what happens when we, when we don't stand in a really firm ethical place. Would you mind just sharing about the woman who lost everything? Yes. I use this in my teaching and, and I use it as a, an example. I always go back to it as an example for almost everything because it, has so many good points. 
in it. It was the first ethical situation that really got my attention. I was teaching with Stanislav Grof in the Grof Transpersonal Training, and I noticed that there were just a couple of people, but they were really surprising people, people that I thought were really ethical and they were really good therapists, but they were getting into trouble when they went back into their office and did one-on-one extraordinary state, in this case, holotropic breathwork, work with their clients. And so in this case, this woman was halfway through her training and she had gotten so much out of it that she wanted to do breath work for this long time, long-term client that she had. And she went back in a one-on-one situation in her office and sat for this person who was doing breath work. And what happened was they had a very deep experience of merging with each other, a oneness experience. And they they didn't know what to do with it. They thought, well, this is happening, so it must, I must, be uh, needing to have a, a romantic relationship. That was the only reference for such an experience for them. And so they did. And a couple of months later, the client began to feel exploited, which the client was because any uh, romantic or sexual interaction in a sacred responsibility uh, is abuse. So the client went to the ethics board and and even um, litigated with the therapist in a court of law. And the therapist lost everything, lost the relationship and lost her license and lost all her money and even her house because she had to pay lawyers. And, you know, some people might say, well, yeah, that's, she shouldn't have done it and so forth. But I think that traditional ethics education let this person down because she obviously had had some kind of an ethics course because she was licensed, but it didn't, kick in. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't kick in is because all those ethical shoulds and shouldn'ts and do's and don'ts get filed in our neocortex. And it takes a while. That's the, the, the slowest part of our brain. Our reactions really happen in our uh, lizard brain and our uh, whatever that is in the middle of the brain. I can't think of it right now. <clears throat> that has to do with emotions. And that's what happened. And so I, I thought something different needs to happen to complement traditional ethics education. So that's what I've been thinking about for the past three decades. How, how do we do that? And what's ethically different is that 
all, all those ethical injunctions and codes and laws and standards of care still apply because you still have those issues, but you have more of them. And the ones that you have are more complex and more have more power to them. So you need to pay attention to those laws, but you also have different ethical issues. Um, and some of them are expanded. They're expanded cartography of the psyche, as Stan pointed out. He uh, wrote a cartography of the psyche, which included not just biography in, in therapy, in therapeutic situations, but what comes up. You know, as we know, as practitioners, uh, birth and death issues and transpersonal issues and perinatal issues come up. So it's much broader cartography of experiences. And it's also harder to focus as a practitioner for many hours and have patience and compassion and not get triggered ourselves. So that's the other thing is that we're very likely to get triggered on some part of our unconscious in uh, be by somebody else's extraordinary, extraordinary state of consciousness. There's, there's so much, we could go down so many different paths there. I know. I know. Um, you know, I read this article uh, last night on the woman who lost everything and I shared something with you in an email because it hit, it really hit me. And I want to come back to this, um, this notion of oneness. Um, now in fairness, I was sitting with uh, a dear friend. This is not in a professional capacity, but when you, you were the first person actually who gave voice and words to what I experienced with this individual. And there was a moment, more than a moment, a couple of hours in an expanded state of consciousness where uh, the individual and I found ourselves in love. And it was such like, it, we, we slipped into this space and it didn't make a whole lot of sense where we were at, but it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience. And then what happened rather than just being in love I found myself being in love with this individual. And I thought that this individual was going to be the thing that kept me coming back to love. So I started to displace the, uh, the, the feeling of love. And I started using this person as a method to get to that place. And you were the first person, this idea of oneness of where they mer these people merged uh, together. And thank God for me that it happened when I was with a close and dear friend and not in a professional capacity because I had no idea or context of what was happening. And it took months for us to unwind what had happened and for us to understand and to build, rebuild trust, because in some ways, neither one of us thought that we were eth breaching any ethical boundaries. We thought that we were in it together, but the very nature of these substances, 
they are designed to break down our boundaries. So I'm curious what happens when we're dealing with a substance, whether or a substance or a practice, whether it's a breath work or a psychedelic, what are the standards of care? How do the standards of care change when we intentionally drop all of the boundaries? I think this, the standard of care is that the person who's sitting really is clearly the responsible party and is responsible for the boundaries. The, the person who is being vulnerable so that they can go into what is unknown and make changes needs to express and feel anything that they're feeling. So they don't have boundaries. The responsible party holds the boundaries. And I really like that term because it reminds us that that's my job. (laughs) I am the responsible party. Somebody's got to take some ownership. That's right. So I think, you know, for example, if somebody, if a client is feeling their sexuality and really getting into that and opening up something in themselves that that is becoming more part of their consciousness and their their body sensations and so forth that is great but perhaps you know many people have sexual abuse as a child in their background i think it's 1 in 4 women and 1 in 13 men according to the cdc and you don't know if if a, that client necessarily is one of those people. And so that might come up. And a lot of the people that have felt some kind of um, sexual abuse as a child. So a lot of those people have tried to please their perpetrator. And they might initiate some kind of sexual advance towards the responsible party. But again, it's the responsible party's role to hold that boundary while encouraging them to continue feeling what they're feeling, that they're doing great. So that's just one example that if you could tell me again what what you wanted me to address. Yeah, well, I think I want to follow that thread because it's it's a really interesting example. If there's a practitioner who is facilitating and the participant begins having a a sexual ex, uh, experience and maybe that participant is now directing some of that sexual energy back to the facilitator. It would it would be really easy as a facilitator to say, oh, well, this person is clearly like showing interest in me. So therefore, some way it's okay. I'm not making an advance. I'm not doing anything wrong. This person is actually showing interest in me. So therefore, I should like engage in this. And what I think I just heard you say is it could absolutely be the acting out of an old childhood or an old trauma wound uh, that 
if the facilitator doesn't have really clear boundaries and some agreements up front, this gets really complicated really fast. And sometimes we don't even know how we got there. Did, did I hear that right? Absolutely. You heard it right. Yes. And, and we need to have this kind of situation named among many situations that need to be named and practiced in training like role plays. How do you, how do you address that if an advance is made to you in the middle of a session? How do you turn it back and say, you know, this is, can you take this inside? Can you take this internally? It's really great that you're feeling. So to practice these kinds of difficult interactions and communications that happen in a session or even in uh, integration sessions um, is really important. Yeah. So that was one of my questions. Can these skills be taught? What are the, what would you say the critical attributes of a good psychedelic assisted psychotherapist are like, what are the attributes that people should think about? And then can those skills be taught? Yeah, I think they're, they're basically two and, and Stan has written some, but the basics are having a commitment to self-awareness and ongoing personal work, I think is really, really important. And having a staunch commitment to being that responsible party and keeping the boundaries and keeping the client's best interests, whatever those are in the forefront. And Stan's list that he wrote in 1985 and beyond the brain, he wrote for, he, he wrote that there is consciousness development in the person that they're continuing their consciousness development. And they have some, awareness of everything, relationship, environment, what's going on inside of them. And self-awareness is the second one. And the third one is having gone through some of the intense experiences of terror and fear, uh, death, rebirth experiences, or just reliving birth things that you don't think you're going to get through and then you do to have that experience and trust the inner healing intelligence is really important so that you don't get in the way because of your own fear because a person who is the experiencer might pick up that fear and think oh this is not right i shouldn't be doing this i can't get through this i pick up your own fear and if you've gone through that and you trust that people can get through what's going on for them, that it wouldn't have come up if they couldn't get through it. And your job, my job is to produce the right conditions for that process to complete. What would you say to someone if they came up to you and said, you know what? Like I didn't have a difficult childhood. I really don't have trauma. So this is really like a great thing for me to do because I can show up and, and not have any of these triggers that you're talking about. I would say they probably haven't yet experienced them. <laughs> yeah. Follow up to that question. Do you think that 
the standard of ethics that we're talking about today are the same for above ground and below ground facilitators. Tell me more about what you're thinking about that. So imagine you are offering ketamine in a um, in a clinical setting. And then maybe if we look at Oregon right now, having some of their first uh, psilocybin treatment centers <laughs> opening, and then we look at somebody who is operating underground and is serving psychedelics either one-on-one or maybe somebody who is uh, a, a traveling medicine carrier that's bringing a substance to a group of people. Do all of those practitioners have the same standard of ethics? I don't think they necessarily do. I don't think uh, two people are the same, but I think the print, what, how you describe your ethics is different than the principles of ethics. I think the principles are, are the same for any situation in which we are a responsible party for somebody's extraordinary state of consciousness experience that we need to know, know ourselves that we need to really be compassionate and patient and trust the process and um, put the client's best interest first. All of those things are principles and they apply underground or in a clinical setting. And to focus on the person, to make sure that you are there for protection. I've heard stories about ketamine experiences where people just hook them up and leave the room. And to me, that's really unethical. That that can produce, I think, an abandonment experience or a lack of a corrective experience if a person goes into that kind of subject matter. Yeah. You mentioned some traits about good psychedelic-assisted psychotherapists. Would you be willing to share any thoughts on maybe more negative traits uh, that maybe a, maybe a client might look out for if they were seeking out somebody to work with? Well, I think if I'd rather talk about it from the positive is that if I were a client looking for somebody, I would ask them, are they, how are, how are you getting feedback? How are you doing your own work? Um, I don't need to know the details about that, but I, I guess I, I would like to know that they have feedback and they have supervision or consultation with with somebody else because we don't we're we're blind to some of the things that we do in some of our shadow material and it's really good to know that they're getting some help for challenges that might occur and i would be looking to see if they keep their agreements if they do a thorough job in preparation for the session you know i think one of the one of the things that's important to do in preparation is for the practitioner to do everything they think of to prepare well for that particular client session and not uh, disregard something that they think of 
because I think the universe is always trying to tell us, you know, here, you know, pay attention to this in this case. And we brush it off sometimes because it's too much work or, you know, I don't want to read about that because it's an issue for this person or I don't want to. And so thorough preparation about what's going to happen, informed consent and all of that is really important. And most people who are practitioners know that. You mentioned something in the article, which is a a couple of words that I've never heard put together before. I'm wondering if you could explain the concept and maybe the outcome or ramifications of a trauma capsule. (laughs) I think I got that. I can't remember for sure, but I think I got that in my training for brain spotting, which is uh, a method that came out of EMDR and is an extraordinary state of consciousness when the client is, is working in that way. And the idea is that there is a spot in the brain that hooks up to a spot in the body where you feel something and that content can come out in kind of a free flow of associations when you hold the spot with your with your eyes that matches the spot in your body it hooks up to the brain in some way and to me this goes also with Stan Groff's um, coex system, which means that traumatic experiences or profound experiences that happen are linked in the same place in our brain somehow in terms of sensation and um, emotion. So if you have the same sensation of being choked a couple of times in your life, that trauma would would be associated in your brain too of, oh my gosh, this is the same thing. Um, And he also says that it can be linked biographically or in utero experiences or transpersonal experiences, that same body brain connection. So that's what I mean. Hmm. Let's say a facilitator We'll go back to the earlier story. Somebody's having a maybe a sexual an experience of a sexual nature, and the facilitator recognizes what's happening and can spot some overwhelm or maybe flooding within themselves that says, Whew, I'm now activated. I'm something's happening in me that I was not expecting. Any suggestions on what a facilitator can do? We're in the middle of a thing. And what can a facilitator do in that situation that is both safety producing and ethical for the client and and for themselves? I think just like in a Vipassana meditation, you can name it and you can remember that your job right now is right here and now with this person and, and, make a little tiny fast agreement with yourself that this needs tending to and keep that agreement after the session so that parts of yourself will know and trust that you will do that. Because sometimes the inner healer says, no, I've just been waiting too long and, you know, I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to take over 
and just you you I don't trust you because you haven't taken care of it in the past. So I think those things are what I would do and I think it's inevitable that it happens to us in sessions and it happens less if we do our own personal work and in extraordinary states of consciousness both practicing being the experiencer and also practicing sitting and i think it's really important to practice sitting with a supervisor so it didn't happen very often with holotropic breath work but sometimes when there were trainers and facilitators walking the floor a sitter who was practicing being with an experiencer would get triggered just like you said and kind of fall out and need one of the facilitators to sit down and be their sitter but you don't have that opportunity if you're you're in a one-on-one situation i think group work is really much safer you know and with a lot of training for the people that are facilitators you've mentioned the inner healer a couple of times and maybe even mentioned mm-hmm. the inner healing intelligence Tell us a little about that. Yeah, well, everybody just takes for granted that we have an inner healer um, physically. That if you get a cut on your finger and you give it the right conditions, like maybe put an antiseptic or a Band-Aid on it, you don't have to think about it anymore. The body just does what it needs to do, sends the right chemicals to the right places, takes away the, the things that it should take away, and it heals. I think, and my experience has been, that there is an inner healing intelligence that does the same thing with the psyche. And that when there is uh, an opportunity, the inner healer will kind of sit up and take notice and say, ooh, this is the right time for a healing of this experience. And it will bring it forward. And then our job as a responsible party is to provide the right conditions as best we can. And the responsibility of the experiencer is to cooperate with that and trust it too. And just let it happen. Let the expressions come, let the body move. Um, So that's a short version of the inner healing intelligence that we call the inner healer in holotropic breath work. Yeah, beautiful. I'm gonna we're gonna move on here in a moment, but I have one last question. What advice would you give to someone who already has felt like they have breached their personal ethics? Maybe they have maybe they didn't know it in the moment. They come out of a a situation and they say, Wow, like I really shouldn't have done what I did. And there is now some secret keeping. Uh, that's already taken root. What would you tell that person right now if they were sitting in front of you in a completely confidential space? Had they already told me what they did? <laughs> uh, nope. They they haven't told you yet. It's still a secret uh-huh. that is sort of like metastasizing inside of them. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I would say is that you're not alone. We all make mistakes. There's a taboo 
in the field, in any professional field, about admitting your mistakes, losing your license, fear of all that, what other people will judge you, and so forth. And I would say, what was the healing impulse in that particular action? So what was the inner healer trying to do for the client or for you? And sometimes it's for both. And if you can come to that, it's easier to get to self-compassion. And self-compassion is really, again, this, the prerequisite to learning, learning from your mistakes. I think guilt is what you've agreed to feel if you're not willing to change. Oof. <laughs> Hold on. I'm going to take you back. Guilt is what you have agreed to feel if you're not willing to change. So if I, if I can reverse engineer that, the minute that I'm become willing to change, which might accept vulnerability or might uh, vulnerability is required. Self-compassion is required. But the minute that I'm willing to change, I think that what I just heard is that's the fastest way out of guilt. I think so. Um, Because if you really know that you wouldn't do it again, you can forgive yourself. (laughs) It sounds so easy with us just sitting here talking about it. And there are a couple of times, just even in my like straight coaching practice, when I have made decisions, when I have said something to someone where I have held on to this guilt for a long time. Fortunately, I have a great support system. I have mentors and other coaches that I can go to and even sharing it with them decreases that amount of shame. Mm -hmm. But making that saying to myself, yep, what I did there, not right. I'm rather than choosing to feel guilty, guilt or shame about it. I'm going to make a choice now not to do that again. And that immediately opens up a space for self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things you can do after that self-compassion. You can um, do repair, for example, and not from a place of, of shame or guilt, but from a place of understanding the wound that you created and wanting to do whatever that person needs um, to help repair. So, and, and also you, you can go into, well, how did I get there? You know, you can do more personal work. How did I get there? What were the triggers? Where are my vulnerabilities to unethical behavior in that kind of situation? And you can do all this, by the way, as a therapist or as a coach, without knowing exactly what happened, you know, if the person doesn't want to tell you. But you can still get them to that place internally. Here's one of the most simple and beautiful things that Christina said to me when probably right before she offered me this book. She said the word, who is this for? Uh. (laughs) Based on the smile on your face, I I can't wait for the answer. (laughs) 
Well, who is this for is the really simple ethical awareness tool in my toolkit. And I came up with it many years ago. And it's just a very simple question that identifies any conflict of interest that is there. For example, just get to give you a really simple one. Okay, the person is crying and and screaming and crying and I really want to offer them a Kleenex, a tissue. And so I ask, who's this for? Am I trying to uh, help them because they want to mop their eyes? Or am I trying to fix them because I'm uncomfortable with them crying and screaming? So that's so with any intervention or if, uh, another example is a lot of people like to tell teaching stories, you know, from their own experience. So who's this for? Is this really the right time? Is can I do this skillfully? Is this something that's going to empower the person or am I doing it because I like to tell my story? And it makes me feel like I know something and have something to give and Sometimes we don't have something to give. We're not great healers. It's already happening uh, without us. And we're just there for, we're in protection mode and responsible party mode and uh, connecting. And we are not doing the healing. The healing is happening. The first thing that I thought of was if I asked that question to myself, who is this for? And if I catch myself. And and maybe or not catch myself and I do it anyway, but I realize at some point that that was for me rather than for them. That just leads me right back into my own work and it leads me right back into, you know, supervision or a peer support group or something like that for me to bring up and say, like, it wasn't for me. Now let's figure out why I did it. Absolutely. And you don't have to do it right then. You can say to yourself, OK, it's for me. I will tend to that later. And I will keep my agreement to do so. Beautiful. Let's let's switch topics here. In the book, you write about dual and multiple role relationships. And I'm wondering if you can just maybe briefly describe a dual role relationship and a multiple role relationship, knowing that a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, like didn't go through, we didn't have our masters in psychotherapy and like, we're, we're approaching this from a, a kind of a neophyte perspective in some cases. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really simple. It's not, you don't have to use a lot of academic language or anything. It's, it's when dual relationship is when there's more than one role with a client in a professional sense, dual relationship. So you're not only a professional responsible party, you're also a friend, or you you also go to the same church, or um, you are a relative or whatever. And multiple relationship is when you have a lot of them. And one thing I probably should say right off the bat is that I realized years ago that there is an inherent dual relationship 
built into extraordinary state work because we are in an ordinary state of consciousness when we work with people for preparation for the session. We are really the person who has more information. We're the expert and they have all their defenses uh, at their beck and call and they can make decisions about informed consent and so forth. But then when they go into the session, that things change. They are vulnerable, as we've talked about, and the practitioner is um, not the expert, in my opinion. Practitioner should be expert at being a responsible party, but not the expert at what the agenda is for healing, because the inner healer is that, and both the experiencer and the practitioner are in the service of what emerges like a midwife and cooperating with that. <clears throat> so there's, there's power shifts that happen in dual relationship. Uh, going into the session, the, there's an up power shift for the responsible party because they're responsible for more things and a down power shift because of vulnerability and suggestibility for the experiencer. So does that explain? Yeah, yeah I think so. I'm going to, can, can we, uh, can we go one step more complicated now? Sure. <laughs> in, in the book, I'm going to read the quote first and then I'm going to literally ask you to help me figure out a problem. If you're willing to do that, I'm going to get some free consulting today. If you're open to that. Okay. <laughs> so in the book, you said members of the clergy uh, have to step nimbly, often learning by trial and error between a myriad roles they play with their clients who are members of the church, temple, or mosque. With the same people, they may have a social relationship, a coworker relationship, an employer relationship, whether supervising actual employees or volunteers a teaching role, a spiritual director role, and a counseling function. So that's the end of that quote. I see this more and more and more happening in psychedelic churches that are popping up. And we have mm -hmm. um, founders, clergy of psychedelic churches who are serving in all of these roles. And it gets really complicated, not only the roles themselves, but now, and this is happening for me, this gets really complicated when some of those roles have dollars attached to them and some of them don't. So sometimes I'm in, I'm holding space in a Bhagavad Gita study group and I'm just like, uh, in that case, I'm like a Sunday school teacher. Another integration circle, I might be a participant. And then there's a moment when I am in a space where it turns into more of a coach role and that coach role has dollars and cents attached to it, which now gets to be really confusing for both myself and the people that are surrounding me with these multiple relationships. How would you tell someone like me or teach me to 
approach these people in a, in a healthy way to say, Hey, like this is a role that I got to charge for, or this is a, uh, I'm operating, I'm putting on one hat in this case and another hat in another case. Does any of that make sense? It really does. And I think what you're bringing up is one of the most multiple roles a responsible party can have. And I think it bears saying that if you're taking on that role, that role supersedes all the other roles when necessary. You can be in a social role and all of a sudden somebody regresses and you need to be the responsible party. Or somebody has a problem with you and you need to not defend yourself, but be the responsible party because they are having an experience of uh, anger. <laughs> and and it requires a lot of communication sometimes, but even communication can be, who's this for? Who's this communication for? You know, sometimes you just listen and accept, hear what's going on and say, yeah, I, I'll think about that. I'll, I'll really think about that, what you're saying, and and not be defensive and not communicate defensiveness. So money. I think it's important when you have multiple roles in a psychedelic church to somehow put out a statement, a written statement, that everybody knows that this, you know, that this is what you get for this. <laughs> this is what what will be charged for that. And um, also there's, I think I've seen in some situations where people, there's the question of asking for donations right after an extraordinary state of consciousness experience, even during it, or when, when do you ask and who, who does the asking the person who has been the responsible party and trusted process person is then asking for money. Um, that can get very messy. So it's it's really that is one of the dual relationships that has a lot of possibility for harm. Touching right around that, uh, Jules Evans wrote an article a couple of months ago talking yeah. about um, psychedelic. Uh, retreat centers and how they use testimonials in their marketing. As we all know, like people, many, many retreat centers are taking testimonials like the day of or the day after some really powerful ayahuasca session. We don't get to see these people 90 days later, 180 days later, when maybe the, the powerful experience isn't quite as powerful Maybe they're completely destabilized and they're needing to do a whole bunch of integration work that that wasn't encapsulated in that testimonial video. But I think it's very similar to the same thing of when are you asking for money and what is the agreement? Maybe that's where I'm getting to even in my own mind right now. Mm -hmm. Upfront agreements, whether that's boundaries of touch, whether that's boundaries of money, getting as much of that stuff done upfront probably is um, a good way to approach as much of this stuff as we can. Yes. And there's also the question of how much, how they can know what informed consent they're, they're giving. How will they know if they've never had a psychedelic experience, whether they will feel like really saying things 
as a testimonial that they won't like after two months have gone by. So I think one one thing you can do with that is to say at any time I will take this down if you ask me. Yeah. Um, I think that allows for some autonomy about about that situation. I just want to share with you a tiny little bit of the process that happened in my head um, mm-hmm. when you when we were talking about clergy and multiple roles, and you have used the word responsible party multiple times, which has all made sense to me, but. Now, when I think of the way that I show up in the spiritual community and when someone approaches me in a, in a situation, the first question, if I can ask myself and ascertain, am I the responsible party? Now the whole tone and tenor of that conversation can change. If I can just accept whether or not I'm the responsible party or if I'm the the participant in any one of these situations, that's the first step in making a decision on how I want to respond. Then the second one for me is, yep, I'm the responsible responsible party right now. Is this a engagement where I would just want to have this conversation with you and I'm okay being in this kind of mentor space Sunday school teacher? Or is this a bigger problem that we need to bring into a coaching or a spiritual direction session. And in that case, there's dollars and cents attached to that and let the individual make up their mind. But in this moment, the responsible party really helped me out thinking about how I'm showing up in multiple roles. Mm -hmm. Good. And there's another term I got from my guru is, uh, are you being a true well-wisher? For this person, which means that your your well wishing is not conflicted with your own desires and needs, and you know in in India people donate and give and so forth, and the the guru doesn't have to ask. <laughs> yeah. In this in this Western world, money is uh, it's the trade is involved. So it has to be clear and communicated so that we don't violate the heart. Mm, wow. Yeah. Most respectable intent is the action that I take that doesn't violate my heart or theirs. Yes. You know, and we do. We definitely struggle, I think, in this culture with a more of a transactional relationship with money versus India and the way that they approach the teachings and the multiple phases of life. And when I'm in this phase, I'm donating a whole bunch to the ashram because I'm paying for my teachers and I'm paying for my gurus and I'm paying for the Mm -hmm. students that are coming up. And then at some point in time, like I'm going to receive some of that money back because there's people coming up behind me and it's, and it's not about asking it's built into the culture that we're really in relationship with money. Yes. Yeah. So one of the last things that I would love to hear your thoughts on are, Going back into to spiritual or in psychedelic communities, um, what are the advantages to being in community uh, when it comes to ethics or just in general? Yeah, well, a lot of my work right now is about peer consultation groups. I think it's really important, as I've said, that because we're blind in some ways and we have secrets that we need to share with people and we have we can get feedback that we don't know yet. And we can both together experience the unknown that we 
both don't know yet if we're in a group. And I've I've looked at well how how does this really how could this really serve the psychedelic community? What kind of structure would be needed for peer consultation groups? And what I came up with was that the need is for people to really talk about the vulnerable things that we have talked about in this uh, interview. Uh, so they're not keeping them secret and they can continue on their on their personal development path with each other. So I've come up with a structure that really focuses on compassion and protecting vulnerability and empowering the rotation of roles in the group. So there's no expert in the group so that um, people really realize that they can help each other in this way with a structure, with roles and functions. So I'm, you know, I'm writing a book about it now and I'm, I have a, a video class about it that can be either licensed by training companies or individuals can take it at psychedelic.support, um, <clears throat> even get CEs for it. <laughs> so I'm hoping that, that it will catch on because I think everywhere that I've done it, I've done groups of four people. I've done groups of 200 people and with breakout groups using role plays and, and trying out the roles and the functions. And it's worked so well. Everybody says, well, I can't believe how fast we got to a trusting place in this group with this role play. And it really surprised me how a role play can get into my stuff, <laughs> you know, because I'm coming up with my own material as I'm trying to ad lib the role play. So anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that that will help. I think we do need community. I think the clients need community. I think one thing that practitioners could do is kind of get together and take turns facilitating a, a, a group kind of in the 12 step model, you know, where people share experiences and don't do cross-talking, but hear that they're not the only ones who had this really out there experience. Because I think all these people, when as soon as it becomes legal at the beginning, there's nobody that they can go home in their network and talk to about it without sounding crazy. Um, and they're not crazy. So they need that affirmation and that normalization. So I think if, if we had those kinds of groups that people could go to, it would really help. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And this one of the reasons why I started the idea of psychedelic masterminds, because I think that there is a lack of, I have a lack of place to share my experiences uh, in working mm -hmm. with people. And, you know, I've been blessed over the last seven or eight years to find teachers to work with where I could eventually go and, and talk to them. But in fairness to them and myself, like those sessions cost money, supervision costs money and doing it in a group model immediately, even if you are paying for it in a group model, it's going to reduce the cost. Um, the other thing that made me laugh about that was that you were talking about role play. And I, I'm just wrapping up a two-year somatic psychotherapy certification course. And there's never been a role play scenario where it hasn't been a lot more about real play for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I can resonate with that. 
Yeah, I remember in Gestalt training that the teacher said, it's all an act and it's all real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think the the extra or do do leaders of spiritual communities, do leaders maybe in general, psychedelic, spiritual, whatever, but do leaders have a greater risk of dealing with some of these ethical things and and how do they handle that? Well, I think they do if they don't have uh, this kind of a group or some kind of people that give them feedback because um, if you're only getting devotion and discipleship, you're, you're very likely to get inflated and realize and not realize that you're a human being with vulnerabilities too. So I think getting that kind of support is really important. Yeah. From peers or supervisors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, step our way into the speed round. A few questions here at the end of our talk. Pretty easy. Come uh, Whatever comes first into your mind. Uh, the first one is, why do you do this work? I The simplest answer is I was called to do it. I didn't want to do it. I was called to do it and I kept getting recalled to do it, even when I wanted to do something else. Yeah. I think it's important because it's about relationship and I'm a Libra. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are incredibly grateful that you listened to the call. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the most important thing this work has taught you? Trust. Trusting the inner healer, trusting the universe, trusting myself. Yeah. Trusting other people. Uh, have their own path. We have a lot of people going through psychedelic education programs right now, whether it's MAPS or any one of the numerous education programs. Somebody coming out of one of those programs and interested in doing this work, whether it is breath work, whether it is with psychedelics, what would be the best advice you would give them on their new path? I do constant self-inquiry. And practice everything. <laughs> Find a way to do extraordinary states of consciousness, experiencing and sitting, um, and and get a peer supervision group. Right. Is there anything that we should have asked you today that we didn't? I was I was thinking that I might like to read a quote from Ramdas. Please, did I, I, did you know that? Uh, that GV is short for Govindas. Like I was given the name uh, Govindas by Ramdas in 2018. So please, oh, if you want to read a quote from Ramdas, I'm all for that. Well, to me, his quote sums up what inner ethics is all about. And he said, and this was from Soren Gordhammer, who spent some time with him and he wrote it in an email. And he said, Ramdas said, my job is to be a space where nothing in me is preventing changes that are wanting to emerge in you. I can do nothing for you, but work on myself. You can do nothing for me, but work on yourself. So I just love that. I probably say the last two sentences of that quote uh, more than almost any other Ramdas quote that he's mm -hmm. got out there, because I absolutely believe that. And I can show up and be a better space holder, a better healer, a better 
facilitator, a guide, if I'm doing my own work. And I just got to stay out of your work. Like, I can't do your work for you. Nope. <laughs> uh, I am going to ask you one more question that I had written down and forgot about. Uh, and we might be, we might fold this back into an earlier part of the episode. But I'm curious when you're talking about the inner healer, do you have an opinion on MDMA, psychedelic, assist, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy? And the engagement and involvement of the therapist, much more engagement versus something like psilocybin, which is probably more directed towards the inner healer. Is that a, would that even be a fair statement that you would agree with? No, because I think the extraordinary state is is different. I mean, they're all the medicines are a little different in their feel and tone, but the same principle applies that the inner healer brings up what is necessary in that time and space with those conditions present. And I've done a lot of personal work myself with MDMA and never had a therapist intervening or or guiding me to a certain, you know, and the word guide, you know, it's it's like somebody who knows the way and it's more midwifery, I think, than guiding. I prefer the word spotter in that like I'm I'm holding the rope while you're climbing the mountain. And if you slip and fall, like I'll hold on to the rope so you don't fall. And then sometimes you might need a little help like, hey, there's a handhold at like yeah. nine o'clock if you just reach up and to the left. But at, a, at best, I'm just like hanging out on the ground, making sure that you don't hurt yourself. Yeah, and I think that's good. And I. I really think that MDMA will bring up what it needs to bring up. Also, it, it doesn't need an intervention or guidance. I think if people are trying to, to get something done with PTSD or whatever, it probably works okay, but I don't think it's necessary. That's what I wanted to hear. That's what I needed. Well, Kylia, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I couldn't think of a better guest to help us kick off season one, talking about safety and ethics. Um, if people want to connect with you, uh, what's the best way that they can do that? I've loved being here and talking with you too. I There's a lot of information about inner ethics at innerethics.com. And there's a way to get in touch with me on a contact form at that site. And to be on my mailing list if you want to do that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, you are perfect and you're right on time. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, Please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks. Have a great day. And remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.